Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sarnana, and with me as always is SEMASMD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Michael Hasselberg. Dr. Hasselberg is an associate professor at the University of Rochester, the chief digital health officer at UR Medicine, and co-director of the UR Health Lab, the health system's digital health incubator. He was named in Rock Health Top 50 in Digital Health for Advancing Health Equity Through Technology. He's also a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner with a PhD in health practice research, a pioneer in telemedicine, and an advisor on telehealth modalities with the New York State Department of Health, the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Quality Forum, and to various health startups, foundations, and health systems nationwide. Dr. Hasselberg, Michael, welcome to the show. Gentlemen, I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Well, you've had just the most thrilling career, really at the forefront of digital innovation and healthcare. You were a pioneer, like I said in the bio, in telemedicine before it was cool and widely used. I know you also ventured into the world of ML and AI years before the current LLMs existed. And I believe you came from a family with a really strong engineering background, which might explain some of your passion for innovation and tech. But I'm curious to understand what inspired you to pursue your career in healthcare and particularly nursing and psychiatry. You know, I've always loved to be able to help people. So, you know, that that's always been my why and driver. As you said, I, I come from a family of engineers. You know, my father was on the innovation team at Eastman Kodak during the whole digitalization move. My brother went to kind of follow in his footsteps and become a an aerospace engineer. And yeah, I really knew I really wanted to go in and um, have more inner with humans and, and people. And, you know, nursing just seemed to be a, a really good fit. Yeah. And kind of throughout my, my early career uh, as a nurse and then going on to become an advanced practice nurse, you know, I really became interested in health equity issues and how can we get healthcare out to people that didn't have access. And that's kind of where I had this full circle and ended up back into the world of technology and really back to kind of my family roots of that engineering mindset. Oh, that's awesome. And I know you've been at the University of Rochester since your early college days and, and actually before in Rochester community. What's kept you in healthcare and that you are? Yeah, I, you know, I left the University of Rochester briefly when I finished my nurse practitioner degree. And it was actually when I became a psych practitioner, it was a new, it was a new discipline. The nurse practitioner movement had just started. There were not a whole lot of nurse practitioner positions available at that time. And my first job as an MP was uh, outside of Rochester in a very rural community in, in New York State, about an hour and a half south of Rochester, and really loved rural healthcare. I was the only psychiatry prescriber for really like six counties. So, you know, I did the, the outpatient medication clinic, I did the jails, I did the nursing homes. Like, <laughs> I, I, I was it. But I've always been a really inquisitive person. I always, you know, like to continue learning. And that's what really brought me back 
to the U of R to finish my doctorate degree. And then when I finished my doctorate degree, I knew I wanted to do academic medicine. You know, I wanted to continue to build on the science. And it's really the only place to, to do that was the University of Rochester, which was in a lot of ways a coming home for me. As you said, you know, I've, I did my master's degree at the U of R, then, then my doctorate after that. So it was really that passion for wanting to get back into the academic side that brought me back up. Right. So Michael, you know, you've been a, a trailblazer in telepsychiatry in particular, yeah. and I'm curious for folks who are familiar with telehealth and telemedicine, but maybe not from the telepsychiatry lens, what would you say is unique about that sort of practice that would happen in telepsychiatry, but may not happen in other areas of, of telehealth? Yeah, you know, in behavioral health, it's rare that we have to lay hands on our patients. So, you know, the ability to you know, really have that therapeutic conversation with a patient. I don't need a whole bunch of peripheral stethoscopes, otoscopes to collect the data that I need to help come up with a care plan or treatment plan. So developing that therapeutic relationship or that conversation through a video conferencing modality, it just seems to mesh and fit really nicely with behavioral health and psychiatry. And actually, you know, really interesting, you know, what I had learned early in my career of doing telehealth, like, you know, 15 plus years ago, I heard from a lot of patients that they felt even more comfortable comfortable telling me things over the video than they would actually in person. And I don't know what that's about, but, you know, it was more than one patient that would say that to me. The other unique benefits from doing behavioral health care via a teleconferencing platform or via video is you're actually seeing the patient in their own home environment. And you actually are able to collect even more data on, you know, some of the things that it may be contributing to the patient's presentation. And I would just love it when my patients would, you know, take their tablet or their phone and they would show me their, their home, show me pictures hanging up on the wall of their family and loved ones. And it was kind of a, takes you to a different level in that therapeutic relationship. So I, I think, you know, that's why telemedicine, you know, in general, it's really, really taken off in behavioral health and is likely never to go away now that the, the cat's out of the bag, that, you know, this is great way of delivering psychiatric care. So, so jumping ahead to maybe some of the newer technologies of today, you brought up a great point of how in psychiatry and in behavioral health, you don't have to lay physical hands on a patient for assessments. Uh, do you believe that that makes behavioral health more ripe for, let's say, conversational AI and chatbots and, and asynchronous communication with patients today versus uh, for, for other clinical use cases or maybe pros and cons from your perspective at this point? That's a really tough question. I think that, you know, the jury's still out on that. Theoretically, you know, yes. You know, I think having a chat interface and let alone that be AI driven can create a connection. You can still create a social connection with that type of interface. But I still think that there is a human component that is still required in delivering health or delivering care. And that just using technology alone may get you up to a point. But for most patients, I do think you will need to transition back to that human to human interface. And so, you know, I do think at a level, you know, AI and chat technologies 
will be very beneficial to a lot of patients, but there will still continue to be patients that will either need that human to human touch or some that right off the bat won't do well with just a, a chat technology. I was going to save this question for a little bit later, but we're kind of already at the AI and chat-based questions. So let's dig in there. You've really been at the forefront of ML and AI for almost a decade now. And I'm curious how the landscape has changed in your eyes with today's LLMs compared to when you were first starting out. Yeah. When I reflect on machine learning and applications in healthcare, we've had a lot of examples in the past where we've gotten really, really excited about the promise of AI, you know, really creating precision medicine, personalized medicine, risk stratifying patients to the right level of care at the right time and the right place. And the last time I personally got really, really excited about opportunities of machine learning in healthcare was after Watson won on Jeopardy and, you know, IBM came out and said, you know, they had this audacious goal of we're going to cure cancer, you know, and we're going to use Watson and we're going to partner with the leading cancer academic group and we're going to invest a lot into kind of this Watson health arm. And that was really, really exciting. That was really around the time that, you know, we started at University of Rochester on my innovation team, digging in deep ourselves in AI applications. And where we had found AI did really well was on the computer vision side. So when you had kind of image data and you were asking the computer to identify abnormalities in those images, we had a lot of success. And we, we really, you know, built some great tools for our radiologists to prioritize scans that they were reading. You know, we built some really great tools for our dermatologists to become more efficient in deciding, you know, which patients can I just manage with an e-consult? You know, which patients can the primary care provider manage? Which patients do I need to get in to see me right now? When we moved into the language side and, you know, tried using natural language processing and other language techniques within the electronic health record to do things like predicting if, you know, someone was going to develop cancer or trying to create predictive models around sepsis or uh, what, what, whatever that may be, we did not have a whole lot of success. And what we quickly learned was machine learning is only as good as the data you're putting into it. And the data we had in our electronic health record had a lot of noise in it. There's a lot of garbage in it. It had a ton of variability in it. So, you know, when you ask the, the machine to identify outliers or patterns in the data, when there's just so much variability, there's so much noise, the machine really, when you kind of reflect that back to IBM's experience with Watson Health, you know, they spent billions, multiple billions of dollars purchasing health record data. And again, they partnered with the leading academic institutions in the country, and they ended up selling off Watson Health, you know, essentially pennies on the dollar because they weren't able to have the success that they had hoped going in. You know, fast forward now to, you know, over the last year and, you know, we now have these massive large language models that come to us pre-trained on, you know, a trillion plus parameters, you know, essentially the entire internet. We've really started to kind of see this tipping point now, you know, the foundation models are so good at understanding general data that when applied to our really kind of noisy EHR data, 
these big foundation models are able to make some sense out of that data. And it's really, really impressive. The other thing that's super exciting, again, reflecting five years ago, you know, even two years ago, as an academic health system, our development time to develop a natural language processing model, it took a long time. You know, we're talking about six months to a year to train it, to validate the data, and again, to get to a result that was less than optimal. Now these these models come pre-trained to us and we just need to tune them and using, you know, prompt engineering, help keep the model focused in the right direction. You know, our dev time to create tools has dropped down to days to weeks. And so it's a it's a real game changer. And, and I'm really, really excited that we may be to a point where we were wanted to be years ago when we watched Watson Health on Jeopardy and we had all that hope with Watson Health. We may actually get there. Michael, I wanted to ask you, like, how much of the current excitement and level of acceptance of AI in healthcare today do you think has been... You know, positively influenced by chat GPT being very much accessible to the consumer. Cause I got to imagine like, you know, eight years ago when you started doing work in AI and ML, probably a lot of health system leaders were like unsure. It seems like the sci-fi thing that Mike was talking about, like, what does that even mean? AI and ML. And when chat GPT came out, like an, an individual consumer could actually interact with AI in a very, you know, daily useful way. And I wonder if like all of a sudden, like, you know, health system board members and executives are saying, hey, Michael, like this AI thing is pretty cool. Like, are we doing anything there? And you're like, yeah, like I've been talking about this for eight years, but hey, if you want to do more of it, I I'm down. Like, is that, what, is that what's happened in the healthcare world in the last year, thanks to ChatGPT? Yeah, I think, again, that chat is so easy to use. And, you know, you don't even have to know how to write a line of code. And you're now able to interact with an AI agent to assist you with something. So 100%, I think that that has helped folks really start to understand what is artificial intelligence? What is machine learning? And I mean, just as a consumer, just in my personal life, I mean, I use ChatGPT every single day for lots of different things. And it's it's really made my life more efficient. And, you know, I think a lot of folks are seeing that. Where we still struggle in healthcare is really understanding what the impact, both good and bad, that this technology might have on let's say our patients, you know, I think we synergies and the possibilities, but you know, AI is not always right. And we do still see that with chat GPT, you know, it, it hallucinates, it fabricates. And when you get it wrong with a patient, you know, it can have pretty dire outcomes. And, you know, that is really, really concerning. However, when you think of all the things in healthcare that doesn't directly interface with the patient that makes healthcare inefficient. That's where I'm really, really excited in the short term that AI is going to be transformative. That if AI gets something wrong on the administrative side and it gets missed, the outcome is likely not going to be as dire as if it was just interfacing with that patient. But the potential reward you know, if AI can take off the burden off my clinicians' shoulders, the things that 
they didn't really intend to want to do when they went into healthcare and give them time back to actually spend with the patient in the room and give them the time back that they can finish work at a decent hour and go home and spend it with their loved ones so they themselves can stay well and burn out. That is huge. Like that will totally change healthcare. And I think when I speak to CEOs and board members, they get that. They understand that. And they're willing to invest and take more risk on that side. I think we're we still have a, a little ways to go when we think about as we're started off this conversation, opportunities for AI and behavioral health and chatbots. There are vendors out there that are uh, kind of pioneering that space, but I think culturally, you know, we're, we're not there yet. I also wanted to ask you about, you mentioned some of the the work that was you know, done over the years on predictive models. And I think one of the challenges we've seen is that you can have the most accurate predictive model, but if the clinicians don't know how to use that insight to change practice, you have a great prediction, but no action. So for example, like let's say you had a great model to predict risk of readmission within the next 30 days. What do you do with that? Like, are you going to call that patient more often? Are they going to come in for follow-up sooner? Like those are the questions I would ask if I were a clinician. And if as a health system, you don't know what you want to do with that insight, that it's just going to hang there and be unused. I'm kind of curious, like how you've seen that navigated perhaps in terms of how do we actually make this insight into an actionable thing or does it just get typically lost? And that's why predictive models have not been as successful as, as we would have hoped. Yeah. And again, it all depends on what you're trying to predict in terms of the resources behind it to actually intervene. I'll give you a good example. Again, getting back to my clinical route in behavioral health, where there's a lot of research happening and a lot of great startups uh, popping up is essentially creating that prediction that a patient with their wearables or, you know, just passively collected data on their smartphone, whether or not they're going to potentially start to decompensate into a depressive state or an anxiety state or even a manic state. Like there is really good research and data now to correlate passively collected data on a smartphone or a wearable and pretty accurately say, you better intervene with this patient now, because if you don't, they're going to really start to slip into a significant depression. Like that is awesome. That is really great that we have that check engine light. The problem that I have is I don't have enough behavioral health providers or interventions to intervene on that check engine light. And so the sad thing is in healthcare for a lot of folks, because we have got so much going on, we're spread so thin, like we don't want to know about the check engine lights. Like I don't want the check engine light to go off. If I don't see the check engine lights, I don't hear the check engine lights. I don't know about it. It's not a problem. That's where I think these predictive analytics, like you said, are, you know, struggle to get implemented because of. We don't have the supply. We don't have the resources to actually intervene. And that's, again, where it gets me back to generative AI and where I'm most excited. It's not on the patient-facing side. Like, if I can fix my clinician wellness problem and burnout problem and I can make their lives easier, then those predictive analytics and all the stuff we want on the patient-facing side is actually feasible to do because I will have the workforce to treat it and manage it. So 
again, to me, the low hanging fruit and where we should be focusing our effort in on is our clinicians at this point. Like it, it makes so much sense. It's one of those things where like, it's great if you can, if you have that check engine like that, that insight, but if you don't have the, the supply of resources to do something with it, then it's just an insight. I guess that's probably why a lot of these prediction models have been implemented more successfully when it's an inpatient prediction. Cause you, I mean, you, you obviously you're yeah. overworked already inpatient, but at least people are there. The patient is there. You don't have to go look for them and, and find a way to help them. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So I was curious, Michael, where do you, or how do you determine what problems to tackle first on the clinician side? Like, are you looking for groups of, you know, teams with their hands up saying, you know, here's a, a problem that I'm facing and you go and solve that? Or how are you establishing the priority of use cases? Well, you know, our innovation team is really unique. Now, I have a team where I have faculty from my STEM schools. So, you know, engineering and data science and computer science, even my humanities, music, education, under the same physical roof as clinicians and faculty from my medical school, dental school, and nursing school. And it is really, truly clinician-driven. So, you know, those clinicians it, it bring their problems that they're struggling with out in practice to this kind of diverse group of technology thought leaders and builders. And we'd really try to get minimal viable products out uh, onto the floors, out into the service lines uh, of our clinicians. And we see what works and what doesn't work with having that clinical champion. So it, it is truly driven for the most part by giving us feedback of what they're struggling with. The other thing that drives where we prioritize our resources is through kind of our leadership at the health system, you know, that really understands the larger long game and the strategic priorities of our health system and university. And they provide insights down to the innovation team of like, here are some of maybe the broader problems that that we're trying to solve and fix. And then we can ideate with our frontline clinicians with those STEM and humanities colleagues to really kind of come up with outside the box solutions to solve those problems. So it's twofold, comes mm -hmm. up through the actual workforce and then it comes down through the executive leadership team. I think about what you've shared in the past that University of Rochester has a unique approach to the healthcare innovation. So I think, you know, some other innovation labs maybe focus on KPIs like how many startups did we spin out or you know, how much research did we publish from, from these innovations? But it seems like you believe focusing on those KPIs matters less and there may be other success criteria you tend to focus on more. How, how do you think about success when it comes to the innovation lab? Yeah, so our biggest KPI is faculty retention and recruitment. Like that is the number one priority for us. And it's actually a really cool KPI and it, it differentiates us. So I'll give you an example. We have some really brilliant physicians and clinicians who are at very, very high demand. They, you know, they, some of our super subspecialists and could go work at any health system in the country. Some of these individuals in a prior life or in undergrad were engineering majors or you know, a, a computer scientist and on to then become a physician. And 
uh, they want to be able to use that part of their brain, that you know, engineering side to solve problems in their clinical practice. As we are recruiting new faculty, you know, we can say to faculty, like, we want you to use that computer science, that engineering side of your brain. And this is what we're going to do. We want you to do your clinical work three days a week and two days a week. We're going to protect your time so you can be a part of this innovation team. And that is huge. And that allows us to really recruit some top-notch faculty members that wouldn't have otherwise come to us. On the flip side, a lot of the faculty within our health system, especially on the clinical side, they come find us, you know, and they just want to be a part of this team that, again, you know, kind of thinks outside of the box, you know, is focused on the bigger picture of fixing healthcare. And they just kind of show up. They just come to our, our meetings. They just become part of the group with or without having protected time to do that. And they say that's their respite. Like it allows them to be creative. They feel like they're part of a bigger mission and, and vision, and it helps them on their wellness as they're doing their clinical side of things. So to us, like that is our biggest KPI that we bring back to, to our institution. Outside of that, you know, we are very focused on our community. And by extension, there are a lot of communities that look like Rochester, so we can impact lots of communities uh, across the country. But our priority is to have an impact on our community and our health system. And that's really why the university invests in us having an innovation shop. So, you know, we can fill those gaps to improve our patients' lives and, and our clinicians' lives. It isn't like you said, other innovation shops. I am not at all interested in us building the next brilliant technology, spinning out a startup and trying to generate revenue in some new license deal. To be frank, we don't do that well as academics. We can create really good ideas, but spinning out companies and then being a CEO of, let's say, an AI company, probably not one of uh, our strengths. And so, you know, what we find is by partnering with industry, by partnering with other health systems, taking more of an open sourced approach to our technology, that brings way more value back to our university, to our health system than any spin out company that would come out of our lab. Well, I love that you have such a, a differentiated focus when it comes to faculty retention and recruitment as a KPI. I don't think we've heard that one yet. So that certainly helps University of Rochester stand out because you're going to attract a whole group of folks who like this is the only option for, for that sort of like mindset. So that's awesome. Yeah, it, it is is really unique. It, it's one of those perks. When you go and you work in academic medicine, it isn't because you want to become rich. <laughs> you know, academic medicine does not pay as well as non-academic health systems, does not as pay well as those other disruptors and industry players in the space. But the, the individuals who come and they choose, I want to work in academic medicine, they're usually you know, have a broader mission or a broader why. And we can create that environment for those individuals to be creative, um, be inquisitive, and really help them achieve whatever why is driving them. And actually, Michael, to double click on something you were just saying, you mentioned the nature of open sourcing a lot of the work. And that is something that I found to be extremely unique to your innovation lab. You really do open source, like all of your code, basically everything is open sourced for 
the whole healthcare industry. I'm curious, how does that philosophy enhance your innovation and collaboration in the field? Why is it important to open source in your opinion? Yeah. First off, University of Rochester Medical Center, and as much as I would love us to be the one that's going to totally disrupt healthcare and, you know, improve it for the future, that is highly unlikely that it's going to be us that does it. Same, same thing, Microsoft, Apple, you know, other large health systems, them as individuals, that they're going to be the one that transforms healthcare for in this country for the better, very unprobable. You know, the, the really kind of cool thing about the open source ecosystem, it's all about collaboration and partnership. And, you know, the way you're successful is by sharing, you know, the best insights, the best knowledge, building off of each other's innovation and and knowledge, and again, really coming together. And that is why, you know, we really embrace the open source ecosystem is because of that collaboration and that partnership. And that has really allowed us to take some of the cool things that we're developing, as I said, for our community, for our patients, and then disseminate it out across the country to help lots of communities, again, that look like Rochester. And so that is really the the reason why we love the open source um, a- approach to it. It's more, again, collaborative than competitive. <laughs> and that's, if you really want to change healthcare uh, in this country and you really want to improve it, we have to be collaborative and partner. Yeah, that that's really the reason behind. So you must have a lot of startups who come to you, especially your role leading digital health, wanting to partner with you and Rochester. What do you would say are the most common things startups get wrong when they're trying to partner with you? Oh, you know, (laughs) several things. One of the, the big things is the business model, just in general. So, you know, startups may have a preconceived idea of where their value is actually had, and they may come up with a really great business plan to raise venture capital dollars that that may be really compelling. But more times than not, where they think the value is in their technology or their service, it's not where us as a health system would say, yeah, that's where we think the value is at, and this is what we for that technology. So a lot of our partnerships with startup companies is really helping them understand, you know, the value of their business. You know, the other thing is health systems are complex and, you know, we don't move as fast as a startup company does, or even just even a larger industry partner may be able to move. And, you know, I think that is important for startups to understand, to understand that complexity and to really derive that value within your product or within your your company. You know, you really need to understand, like, how do I not only integrate my technology into the health systems technology stack, but how do I really integrate it into the operational work of a health system? How do I integrate it into the clinical workflows of a health system? And how do I manage just change management in general? Change is very scary for most people, and even more so in healthcare, where a lot of things we've done, we've just 
done it that way for forever. And that's the way we approach things, good or bad. And so, you know, really understanding how do you work with a health system to do that change management? I think that is something startups don't really understand fully before they they approach uh, to work with us. Yeah, and into your point, Mike, I think part of the challenge is they look at some of the outlier consumer successes. Like, let's go out to chat GBT and they think, oh, we just put it on the wild. Everyone just goes and uses it. But the reality is, you know very well, you, if you just put something in front of a clinician at a large health system, you're not going to get just suddenly wild growth. Maybe a few outliers exist like that, but that's so rare. That's not the, the reality for most startups who try to get into the health system. A hundred, hundred percent. You know, it's something that's be as simple as like, I've got this really great application, really seamless for the patient to log into and man, look at this beautiful backend dashboard that your clinicians can see to kind of track the progress that the patient is, is, is making. If that interface for the patient to use your product is not fully integrated into our patient portal that the patient logs into, makes it that much more difficult for us to embrace. On the other side of things, logging in to another backend system and I've got to log in to, let's say, the electronic health record, just that extra step of having to put my credentials in, putting in another password. Clinicians don't want to do that. And, you know, a lot of startups don't understand where that push is. It's just simple. You could have it up on the separate screen of like, no, it's a one extra step and I'm not going to get my clinicians to buy in despite how beautiful and how wonderful your dashboard is. And I think that's an eye opener for a lot of individuals, especially early startups that may not have the resources, both financial or engineering or connections to fully, truly integrate their product into the health systems tech stack. And I think to your point, like to get that empathy for why what sounds such like a simple barrier is actually such a huge barrier is unless you've actually shadowed or lived being in the clinical environment and seeing clinicians like run around all day in this complicated web of healthcare delivery, you can't really appreciate how there's almost like no time to click into another like login and know another password. Like there's just no time for that. There's no space for that. But if you're like a tiny startup working in, a, in an office setting where it's not as, as chaotic as a hospital setting, you don't know why. It, it's not really that simple. You, you have to actually, I think, live it and, 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 and immerse yourself in the clinical environment to truly empathize with, with the clinical folks. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, the root of all innovation, I hate folks that just innovate to innovate mm -hmm. or because, oh, my God, we've got ChatGPT. Look at all the great things I can do with it. I can build this really, really great widget. You have to understand the problem you're trying to solve. It really drives me nuts when I get startups who come to me to try to tell me what my problem is and say, I've got this really awesome technology. You have this problem and this will solve it. Then I, I, I really do enjoy when uh, the startup tells me what my problems are and why I should be thinking about it and addressing it. So that there is for a lot of startups that disconnect because you know, they're brilliant technologists and, you know, they're well-funded and they leverage these, let's say, ChatGPT, these foundation models, create something really, really great and really cool. But if they don't really understand what are the core problems that my clinicians or patients are having within the health system, like, good luck trying to, to, get, to, to get us to embrace that. Yeah, I think, I think what I've come to realize is a lot of vitamins that startups are building, but you're, I mean, you need painkillers 
That's just the yeah. reality of it. Yeah. 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 The, you know, the other funny thing, you know, that I've been talking about recently is I, I want startups to be working on higher level problems. You know, I do not want to see any more ambient documentation solutions prior authorization solutions, rev cycle solutions. There's so many folks moving into that that space. That's table stakes. Like mm. as a health system, that core technology to build those solutions ourselves, it's that easy to use. Mm. As we were talking about that, that chatter interface, I don't need to have a whole engineering team that knows how to write Python code or, or R to do that anymore. Like I can build my own tools to solve those types of problems. I want you working on something that I don't have the resources to do something more complex. And I don't know what that, you know, right off the top of my mind, like what that is, but we have a lot of folks that are quickly trying to spin out companies in the, these areas that, Hey, you know, that same foundational model that you used to build that, I have access to that. And yeah. it's, you know, pretty easy for me now to build something. And I've got the data. So, like, it's it's even probably easier for me to build a solution because I have all the data that, you know, you don't have. Right. It seems hard to believe that, a, like, another startup could, could provide a, a model that is so superior to what you can get access to already with the the kind of being common players. And you're right, you have the data too. So they can't offer you the data. Their model is probably going to be not really that different than what you can get through Microsoft, you know, or the other one. So like, what's what's the point of, of repeating the same, rebuilding the same wheel basically with something like Ambient to your point? I mean, folks are going to do it though. I don't think, I don't, I don't think folks are going to stop doing it. No, no. <laughs> and, and here's the great thing. You know, folks like me that's doing it, I'm going to open source my code. Like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to give it away. So, like, you're going to build something. Great. I'm going to build the exact same thing because that's my problem. And I'm going to give it away to health systems around the country to pull down. I see that as really exciting. And, and that's the future. And a lot of this should be open sourced. If we really want to drive down costs, we should give it away. And we should all just kind of build off of it with each other. And I guess, Michael, to your point, like, your, your message is, hey, you know what? We, it's not that we don't want startups to exist. It's that you please solve the, the higher level problems that we can't solve ourselves today. That's exactly. Exactly. That you've got the venture money that, you know, in health systems, you know, our margins are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So, like, we don't have, we can't raise the, the money to, to build certain solutions. I don't have the... We have great engineers for sure at the University of Rochester, but I don't have the sampling pool of engineers from across the country to tap into to build things. So, you know, those are the things that I want my startup partners to to really be focused, focusing in on, not the stuff that now I can do myself. Well, hopefully, Michael, after this episode airs, you'll get, you know, 90% fewer inbound emails about the next ambient. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. I feel like, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm getting, I, I get the emails, I get LinkedIn, you know, I get, you know, people that got my, my personal cell phone somehow. And, you know, it's like, it's the digital world we live in. It's, it's that stop of, of, of folks that have solutions for me, which again, not a bad thing. I'm glad that there are folks that are passionate about, you know, building stuff to fix healthcare because we all know it's really broken. And the more people we have working on it, the better off that will we'll be. I just for my own personal wellness, it would be great to have a respite and go 
a, a day or even more than a day where I'm not getting pinged by a vendor who has the next greatest solution for me. So maybe let's, well, we won't kill the passion, but we may just redirect the focus. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So Michael, I wanted to kind of get your remarks on this. You once said that Rochester was Silicon Valley before there was Silicon Valley. What did you mean by that? And why do you recommend Rochester for healthcare innovators out there? Yeah. So I was born and raised in, in Rochester and I have this community. Some of the most transformative companies, you know, were in Rochester that totally transformed this world. When I think about social media and I think about Meta and I think about MySpace before that, and I think about YouTube and Instagram, we would not have social media if it wasn't for the Eastman Kodak Company. People don't recognize that. People don't realize that. Eastman Kodak Company created the whole process of digitalization. It was more than just the digital camera, the ability to store images up on a computer, share images, print images off. You know, that was Rochester. And people think that, you know, Rochester had this innovator's dilemma and they pushed the digital camera under the rug, a, a film uh, community, that that actually is, is not the case. You know, Kodak continued to invest in digitalization and in into that process. What Kodak, in my opinion, didn't realize that people didn't need to have that physical photograph to essentially create a Kodak moment or share memories. Like they, they missed that piece. They were a uh, a consumerable kind of company, but that core of sharing images and sharing videos to each other over the ether, you know, that was Kodak. Mm -hmm. um, when I think of like the other, when we think about kind of personal computers and the computer industry, we would not have the Macintosh today, you know, and the biggest, most well-known innovative company in Apple if it wasn't for the Xerox Corporation. What people don't realize is Xerox, you know, was also working on the personal computer when Apple was was working on their personal computer. And Xerox actually set up their research and development lab right in Silicon Valley called Park. And Xerox had some investment in Apple. And the story goes that Steve Jobs, you know, after the partnership with Xerox wanted to go and see what was happening at Park and had actually saw the Alto computer, had saw the mouse. What Xerox had was the graphical interface where you could actually kind of move icons around. And at the time, Apple was working on the Lisa computer, which was not as successful. And when Steve Jobs saw it, it said, that's the future of personal computing and essentially went back. And when you look at the Macintosh computer next to the Alto computer, they look identical. And so that's the early influence of the innovative thought process that came out of Rochester, New York, that essentially changed the world, uh, in my opinion. So we have always been a entrepreneurial, innovative uh, community and that that ethos is 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 sticks with us you know you fast forward now 30 years that the, the biggest company in in rochester is no longer 
uh, a tech company in, in Kodak or, or Xerox. It's the University of Rochester. We're the biggest company now. And, you know, we continue with that same proud history of, of innovation. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think, part of why we do what we do and how we do it, which is very different, in my opinion, than the other innovation shops and the other universities in the country. It really comes back to the roots of our community. I love it. It's great to tie that thread together with the community again. Michael, just being mindful of your time, we're going to flip over to the fast five lightning round. So this is just five rapid fire questions for you uh, to get to know you better. The first question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Ooh, I could tell a book that was recently gifted to me from an innovation colleague at another academic health system out in the Midwest was The Infinite Game. And I really, really enjoyed this book because some of my struggles as a growing leader myself is, you know, we live in a world with mostly finite thinkers and, 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 and folks that play finite games where there's rules, you're trying to kind of win the game. And I've always been more on that kind of infinite side of the thought process. I'm always focused on the long game. I'm very mission and, and kind of vision driven. And that book really helped me understands the kind of thought processes between finite, infinite leaders, and we need both to be successful. So, you know, I really appreciated my colleagues sending me that, that, that book, and it's really helped me give a different perspective as I try to innovate within my health system. Love it. Question two, who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Oh, so this will go back to my my nursing roots. I would love to meet Florence Nightingale. You know, when I think about innovators and pioneers, oh, Florence Nightingale was an innovator and, and a pioneer. And, you know, we wouldn't have preventative medicine if it wasn't for, for Florence Nightingale. So, you know, I would love to to have the opportunity to have picked her brain and to see her courage to do what she did, when she did it at that time of the country, and then what a lasting long-term impact that she was able to to make uh, on the world. Man, that would be pretty awesome mm-hmm. to talk with Florence Nightingale. Yeah, love it. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Ooh, super speed. I'm a tall and lanky guy, so I actually don't move that, that fast, but, but my my brain moves, I think, really, really fast. I have like a flight of ideas. If I could get the rest of my body to keep up with with my brain, man, I would be a heck of a lot more efficient with my time and actually maybe, you know, be able to get things done so I could have a better work-life balance and spend more time with my family. So definitely would love to speed up my body to be compatible with, with my mind. Love it. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Oh, you know, I I was, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, I was really, really excited and still am. I still think there's potential. I think it was July of 2021 when Dollar General announced that they had hired a chief medical officer and they were getting into the healthcare space. Now, I think, you know, a lot of people would be actually really surprised to know that Dollar General is in healthcare. But, you know, I think the opportunity to be had with delivering care in rural communities through uh, a, a retail partner like a Dollar General 
could really, really been be transformative. You know, like we know at the U of R, and, and I've met Dr. Albert Wu, the the chief medical mm-hmm. officer at Dollar General, and and I've shown him our our, our data. We know at uh, University of Rochester. 85% of our patients, and we've geocoded all of our patients in our market, we've geocoded all the Dollar Generals, 85% live within two miles of a Dollar General. So you think about new access points to healthcare, man, what a great opportunity to reach underserved patients. And uh, I'm really excited to watch what Dollar General does in the healthcare space going forward. Yeah, love it. We could have a whole other podcast episode on your thoughts in that space and rural healthcare and telemedicine access. So we'll have to have you on at another point in time. But last question that we have, Michael, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? March 2020, when COVID started hmm. uh, in our community is is where where I would go back. And mostly because I would like to have had some time to actually take a step back, be a fly in the wall and kind of reflect on, on, on what happened, especially over that first three months to six months. And, you know, from a, from a positive lens, you know, that was the first time in my career that silos were broken down. We moved really, really fast in healthcare. We transformed and changed like within a, in a week. And in a lot of ways, we were really, really successful in that transformation, you know, and I'm thinking back to, you know, all of the work I did years prior to COVID in telehealth and the obstacles and the barriers that I had to deploy a telehealth model. I mean, March 2020, when COVID hit my community, we flipped the switch and we had telehealth turned on on our entire health system in like a week. And every health system in the country did that. You know, having the opportunity to actually step back and just observe on how we were successful so quickly and how can we learn from those lessons to continue that going forward, I think would be really powerful. Because in a lot of ways, I think now as COVID has started to kind of die down, we've gone back to a lot of our pre-COVID ways of thinking around transformation. And that's kind of, to me, a pointing because so much good actually happened, especially early on in the pandemic. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today and sharing your wisdom with us. That is a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast, you want to learn more, visit www.seamless.md. Michael, Dr. Hasselberg, again, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you both for having me. This was so much fun. Mm-hmm.